Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24, Sputnik Radio, Radio Havana, Cuba, and NHK Japan. We will begin with France 24. Before Russia entered into Ukraine, there was a meeting at the United Nations to attempt to scale back the conflict. Then a global press review following the beginning of the Russian military operation. France 24. Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba pleaded for help as he addressed this session of the UN General Assembly. He said that the beginning of a large-scale war in Ukraine will be the end of the world order as we know it. It's your ultimate duty uh, to defend the Charter of the United Nations, he said. And applause broke out after he finished his speech. The UN Secretary General took a firm stance. Our world is facing a moment of peril, he said. I truly hoped it would not come. He said that this is the uh, worst crisis crisis the world has faced in his time as Secretary General, and he called uh, the, Russia's recognition of the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states, violations of the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Ukraine. Now, Guterres offered his good offices to mediate the crisis, but Moscow is clearly not very keen on that idea. We don't understand what good offices the Secretary General talked about. Uh, Russia's UN ambassador, Vasilina Bensia, told the General Assembly. He claimed yet again that Ukraine is carrying out a genocide in Donbass, a claim, of course, that the Secretary General has rubbished. US Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield warned that a Russian invasion of Ukraine could displace as many as 5 million people and create a new refugee crisis. Now's the time to get off the sidelines and show Russia that it's isolated and alone in its aggressive actions, she said. But Russia's not entirely isolated. China is walking a diplomatic tightrope right now. That's clear here at the United Nations. The Chinese ambassador uh, gave a very short speech uh, saying that whilst China uh, respects the principle of sovereignty, the history of Ukraine and Russia is a complex web. China there clearly with Taiwan on its mind. Let's get some reaction now. Diptyka Laurent is here to take us uh, through the how the uh, press is reacting to this uh, military operation in Ukraine. Well, let's show you the front page of the New York Times today, Stuart. In fact, the American papers did have time, I think, to alter their front pages with the news of this military operation. Uh, the New York Times uh, going with a headline, Russia attacks as Putin warns a world, Biden vowing to hold him accountable, really sums up uh, this uh, Thursday morning's news. Uh, global leaders indeed have swiftly condemned the invasion. Um, U.S. President Joe Biden has is vowing to hold him accountable. Putin declares war. That's how the British paper, the Daily Daily Mail said, um, put it on its front page this morning, uh, quite in there in bold, uh, really echoing what Putin didn't explicitly say, but what is 
visibly happening in Ukraine. You've been looking at uh, some of the reactions from the Russian press as well. Well, a lot of denial from the pro-government Russian paper, uh, Russian websites. You see it clearly on the website of the publication Izvestia. Uh, Izvestia. Uh, the Russian armed forces did not carry out rocket, air and artillery strikes in the cities of Ukraine. It says rather high-precision uh, weapons were used to incapacitate Ukrainian aviation and military infrastructure. The publication quotes the Russian Ministry of Defense on its website there. Furthermore, it, it quotes the ministry as saying no citizen uh, populations are being threatened. And, uh, another Russian uh, pu publication, a, a nationalist publication called the Svobdonaya uh, Pressa, relates much of the same information uh, coming out of the Russian foreign ministry. It also accuses Ukraine of wanting to arm all those who can hold a gun against Russian separatists in the country. What about the Ukrainian press? How are they uh, reporting Dipti on the military operation? Well, the reaction from them is rather defiant, Stuart, at least from this publication. The editor-in-chief of Sensor, uh, who says he's near Donetsk in the east of the country, uh, writes in this editorial today that this is one of the darkest times in Ukraine's history. But it is at these times that a nation is built, uh, that it is created. He calls on his compatriots to not be scared because Ukraine will win. That's that's what the headline there reads. Uh, rather triumphantly. Um, today's the time to show that Ukraine is united. So he's really striking a hopeful, optimistic, positive tone in this editorial. Now, of course, uh, several world leaders tried to meet with Vladimir Putin in recent days to avert this crisis. Emmanuel Macron amongst them. And uh, Dipsy's found a lot of analysis around why the West failed to thwart this uh, Russian invasion. Well, it, it is interesting. On one hand, you have this Financial Times uh, journalist here who argues that among those world leaders, notably French President Emmanuel Macron, really positioned himself as the spokesperson for the West and he tried and failed to deter Vladimir Putin. Um, now, the writer in this article blames Macron's overconfidence about his powers of persuasion and perhaps his affliction by, quote, romantic notions of France's historical relationship with Russia. Uh, we know that those diplomatic talks are futile and in fact, the, uh, the writer here explains that leaders knew it too, but they had to do it so that they could say they tried, even if, it, if, they, if they knew it wasn't going anywhere. Um, the Telegraph, on the other hand, says that the West is in part to blame for Vladimir Putin's growing hatred of the West. Uh, they cite a few examples of the international community's disregard of Russian concerns over the intervention in Kosovo in 1999, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and the bombing of Libya. But the Telegraph says, I quote, only one man started this war and the blunt fact is that it is not clear he ever wanted peace. Tipsy, thank you very much. Tipsy Killeron, they're giving us uh, some reaction from the press there. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com. They also have a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They produce a daily English language debate, which is always informative, and a weekly edition called The World This Week that is available as a podcast on all major podcast sites. I highly recommend France 24 as a news and opinion source. Next, Sputnik Radio. On this program called Going Underground, Afshin Ritansi spoke with Ben Aris, editor-in-chief of BNE Intel News. He discusses Vladimir Putin's motivations for recognizing the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, NATO expansion causing major security concerns for Russia, Ukraine Zelensky declaring that he will not implement the Minsk agreements, which is a trigger point for Putin, 
and Ukraine tensions posing the biggest crises for the West since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Sputnik Radio. Longtime Russia reporter and Eastern European specialist editor in chief of BNE Intelli News, Ben Harris, joins me now from Berlin. Was there any choice for Putin? Uh, 14,000 dead, the uh, continuous shelling that the Ukrainian military spokesman said it's fake news. We always emphasize we do not shoot at civilian infrastructure or into some territory in Rostov region or whatever. That's uh, Pavlov Kovalchuk. Uh, had Putin got any choice but to do something after the Duma also voted for him to uh, recognize the independent republics? It's, there's two camps. I mean, those that uh, believe that Putin doesn't believe Ukraine is a real country and that he's hell-bent on destroying it, that he feels that democracy there is threatening him. And then those who think that Putin is what it says on the can. It's about security concerns, that he's afraid of eventual missiles in Ukraine, and those would be on the border. They would have under five-minute flight times, and they would be able to hit 80% of Russia's population. And although nobody's offering Ukraine membership of NATO at the moment, you know, it could happen eventually. And he's looking to once and for all fix this. The tensions have gone up radically. And moreover, it's been quite clear that Russia would get sanctioned as a result of this. But he's prepared because the way I see it, he, he started this in 2007 in Munich when he, he warned that he, Russia would push back if NATO continued to expand, and it did. So then he started modernizing the army in 2012. Um, he sacrificed the prosperity Russia had built up during the boom years for this effort and built up, what is it, $630 billion of reserves. It's an insanely huge amount of money, paid off the debt. So Russia is one of the lowest debts and made the whole economy sanction proof. And he's going to go all the way because there's very little leverage. I mean, harsh sanctions are coming, but I don't believe they're actually going to hurt the economy in any significant way. They'll raise costs, they keep growth low, but he's prepared to do all of that because he's totally focused on solving this security issue. Because, you know, agree with him or not, he has been in his bonnet about NATO expansion and the threat that poses. And so he's decided to do something about that. That's the reality. We have to deal with a Putin that thinks like that. Um, and I think engage and come to some sort of deal. But it's come down to a, uh, a fight between his pragmatic security concerns versus um, principle on Europe's side about the sovereignty of nations being able to choose who their partners are and feeling threatened by Russia, which is threatening. I mean, what he's doing is extremely aggressive. This is the most serious crisis I think the West has faced since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. Macron and Schultz, during this European um, effort that's been going on in February, uh, both went to Zelensky and told him, look, you need to do the Minsk II agreement. That would solve everything. And moreover, you need to do it on the terms that Russia wants, and that would be to make um, Donbass you know, an autonomous region, which gives Russia de facto veto over NATO. And Zelensky flatly refused to do that. Moreover, called the Minsk II um, agreements vapid um, and a waste of time. And I think that was the point where Putin saw that that particular possibility of getting Minsk II implemented, because he clearly told Schultz and, and um, Macron that if you get Minsk II implemented, then that will solve it, we'll be happy, we'll go away, you know, withdraw from the Donbass, stop interfering. Um, but that didn't happen. And that meeting at the end of last week where Zelensky made it clear that he wasn't going to budge on that question, 
then the next day, all of the problems in Donbass flared up. And clearly, the Kremlin has been planning this. So the Duma vote in order to recognize the two republics, this is a card that's been prepared and was played, and they put Putin in a position to make the decision that he's just made. And I think that they've planned out the whole diplomatic effort very carefully, well in advance. So it started with the demands in December, then you had January round of uh, diplomacy, which was largely focused on the US, hoping that Biden would be able to push this through. When that failed, then you had the European round that focused on Minsk too. But I think last week, Zelensky definitively shut that off. One of the points here, I mean, one of, one of the basic problems is that, you know, you have geopolitics going on where big countries tell little countries what to do. And then you've got the principle, the Helsinki process, where sovereign states have a, you know, a guaranteed right to make the decisions for themselves. And we all live in a civilized world and should respect that. And the Russians, I think, feel there's a certain amount of hypocrisy here. I mean, Ryabkov, the deputy foreign minister, brought up the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was very clearly, you had a sovereign nation, Cuba, deciding to ally with its friend, the Soviet Union, and accept missiles onto its territory. And JFK just was like, no, we're not accepting that. It threatens US security. And so the whole Cuban Missile Crisis thing started. And Putin's arguing that what's going on with Ukraine is exactly the same that you've got uh, Ukraine that's being used as an unsinkable aircraft carrier moored along the shores of Russia that's going to be a permanent threat. And so big powers, the West feels that, you know, it's economically and militarily superior to Russia so that it doesn't need to be pushed around. But the problem with that is that Putin is extremely talented at making trouble. And what are you saying about our journalists in this country? And what are you saying about the role of disinformation? Obviously, Ukraine has closed down five channels. Uh, Sakir Starmer, the Labour leader, wants to close this channel down all around the world. What is the role of information and how should we and people watching this programme uh, understand media coverage of this uh, conflict? The problem is with the whole Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia story in particular is that it's become very emotional. You know, we've had like 20 years or less, 15 years of demonizing Putin, um, um, which itself has become a great story that, you know, the editors believe like evil Putin sells papers, which is probably true to an extent. But um, the objectivity to some extent has gone out the window because various narratives have developed. And those narratives get fed. Um, and then again, a lot of, you know, the, the number of foreign correspondents in Moscow is very small. And a lot of people are writing about Russia from the outside. But then what do they do? What do they know? Their entire background is based on the narrative that they've had. Um, you know, what we do at BE is like we have, we, you know, we live there, we work there, and, and we try and do a balanced story. And there's lots of good things that have happened. I mean, Putin has doubled the size of the economy. Incomes have gone from $10 a month when he took over um, to the same level as the lower end of the EU. Um, it's the most prosperous of all of the former Soviet Union countries that didn't join the EU. So there's been successes. But at the same time, you know, he is who he is, former KGB officer, brought up in the Soviet Union. And so he's this figure sort of caught between these two worlds. And at the same time, on the other side, because of the decaying relationships, that he's being progressively demonized. So we have this expression, Putin's Russia, in so much as the imp uh, implication there is the country belongs to him, he runs it like a czar, and he's aggressive and KGB and shoots journalists and crushes the opposition. And some of that stuff does happen. I mean, it is not an entirely reformed country. 
Um, but that's the narrative that gets told. Um, and the other stuff, the successes, the transformation gets ignored. Some of the business press do it. But and you look at the market, the market's overweight in Russia, or has been until recently. The market loves Russia. So, but that story is sort of contained within banking circles and doesn't well, get out. Well, that's all seen as propaganda, as you know, Ben Aris. Thank you. That excerpted interview is by Afshin Ratansi from his program called Going Underground on Sputnik Radio, the current name for the voice of Russia, available online at rt.com. And on YouTube, search for Going Underground, and you could listen to the entire 28-minute interview with Ben Aris from Business News Europe. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. The World Health Organization announced that six African nations will receive the technology to produce their own mRNA vaccines. The World Food Program warned that 95% of Afghan people do not have enough to eat. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak says he does not regret the killing of Palestinian citizens of the occupied territories in the year 2000 during the beginning of the Second Intifada. Radio Havana, Cuba. The World Health Organization, the WHO, has announced that six African nations, Egypt, Kenya, Nigeria, Senegal, South Africa, and Tunisia, will receive the technology needed to produce their own mRNA vaccines. According to the WHO, the move is part of an initiative to expand vaccine access and decrease dependency on wealthier nations. Dr. Tedros Adhanom, Director General of the WHO, told reporters, quote, more than 80% of the population of Africa has yet to receive a single dose. Much of this inequity has been driven by the fact that, globally, vaccine production is concentrated in a few mostly high-income countries. One of the most obvious lessons of the pandemic, therefore, is the urgent need to increase local production of vaccines, especially in low- and middle-income countries. The United Nations World Food Program, the WFP, warned on its official Twitter account that, quote, 95% of people in Afghanistan do not have enough to eat, as the United States has frozen Afghan government assets worth billions of dollars and international sanctions against the ruling Taliban have plunged that Asian country into a full-blown economic crisis. WFP Asia Pacific continued, hunger continues rising in Afghanistan. In January, 8 in 10 income-earning households experienced a significant decrease in income, with Kabul hit the hardest. Worse still, some were forced to brave the cold month with no income at all. Since the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August of last year, unemployment levels have also increased throughout the country, leaving parents unable to provide food for their families. The direct result has been a surge in malnutrition, producing a dramatic rise in pneumonia in children. The UN says that Afghanistan, that is already suffering from high levels of poverty, is facing, quote, one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak says he does not regret the killing of more than a dozen Palestinian citizens of the occupied territories in the year 2000 during the beginning of the Second Intifada or Uprising. The Second Intifada began on September uh, 2000 and then 
Israeli opposition leader Ariel Sharon stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Al-Quds with heavily armed Israeli forces. It sparked widespread outrage amongst Palestinians who had just marked the anniversary of the 1982 Sabra and Shatila massacre, triggering protests which were met with Israeli police brutality. Palestinians in the occupied territories took to the streets to condemn Israeli police brutality and voice solidarity with the people facing violence in Al-Quds and the Gaza Strip. Israeli police shot dead 13 unarmed Palestinians in the wake of the demonstrations. In an interview with the Yedioth Aronoth newspaper, the former Prime Minister said, quote, as far as the Arab citizens of Israel who were killed are concerned, I feel no guilt. Barak also described the Palestinians as, quote, the elephant in the room in Israeli politics. As the Palestinian people mark the 20th anniversary of the Second Intifada, their hope for a better future has diminished after two more Arab states normalized ties with the Israeli regime. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at RadioHC.cu, though the podcasts have not been updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6060 or 6100. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report, or could assist me by supporting this Lister-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal, or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet, like a good listener in Willits, California did this week. Many thanks. We will conclude with NHK Japan. Ten major Japanese companies with the World Wildlife Foundation are developing ways to stop using disposable plastic. European countries are trying to speed up, ending their reliance on natural gas from Russia. China is going to sanction two U.S. firms following U.S. agreements to sell weapons worth $100 million to Taiwan. A Japanese and a Taiwanese same-sex couple are trying to expand the legality of same-sex marriages. Taiwan has partially lifted bans on Japanese foods, which have been in effect since the Fukushima disaster. NHK Japan Ten major Japanese companies are teaming up with a leading NGO for the transition to a greener future. They want to significantly reduce their reliance on disposable plastics by the year 2025. The Japan arm of the World Wildlife Fund launched the project, which aims to promote the use of recycled materials. Drinks maker Santori is on board. Company officials say they want to eventually transition to bottles made entirely from plant-based materials. They've set a goal of 50% on a weight basis from this year. And officials at consumer goods giant Unilever say they'll consider selling shampoo by weight to reduce packaging. It's thought about 8 million tons of plastic waste flow into the world's oceans every year. The problem is expected to be on the agenda at a United Nations Environment Assembly meeting starting later this month. Now, European nations are speeding up efforts to reduce their reliance on natural gas from Russia as tensions rise over Ukraine. Vessels carrying liquefied natural gas have increased since mid-December in the Dutch port of Rotterdam. 
About 60 LNG tankers have entered EU's largest port in the past two months. That's half of the total for last year. EU members purchase about 40 percent of their natural gas supply from Russia. But they've moved to procure supplies from the United States, Qatar and other nations as Russia could reduce supplies to Europe in response to the Western sanctions over the Ukraine conflict. Europe is increasingly turning to renewable energy sources. The region is also pushing up demand and prices for natural gas, which is cleaner than coal or oil. Ukraine tensions have put additional pressure on European nations to diversify their natural gas sources. China's government says it'll sanction two U.S. firms in response to the Biden administration's approval of a plan to sell weapons worth $100 million to Taiwan. The U.S. arms sales gravely undermine China's sovereignty and security interests, China-U.S. relations, and peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. We firmly oppose this. Wang announced Beijing will impose sanctions on Lockheed Martin and Raytheon Technologies based on China's anti-foreign sanctions law. Their deals were related to maintenance of Taiwan's missile defense systems. The spokesperson did not specify the content or timing of the sanctions. He said the U.S. and relevant parties should respect the one-China principle and cut military ties with Taiwan. In other news, a Japanese man and his Taiwanese partner are appealing to expand the legality of same-sex marriage in their homelands. Japanese national Ariyoshi Ezaburo and Luin Ren of Taiwan held an online news conference with supporters on Wednesday after their attempt to register their marriage in Taiwan was rejected twice. Same-sex marriage is legal in Taiwan unless one partner is from a country where such unions are not recognized. Such marriage is not legal in Japan, so 42-year-old Ariyoshi cannot obtain some benefits of marrying his 34-year-old partner in Taiwan, such as holding a spouse visa. Ariyoshi said Japan should also allow same-sex marriage. Lawyers for the couple said there are more than 400 international same-sex couples in Taiwan. Marriage is one of the basic human rights, but do we not even enjoy it? We hope couples who love each other would be able to marry, regardless of gender, age, ethnicity, or distance. The couple has filed a lawsuit at the Taipei High Administrative Court in a bid to have their marriage registration accepted. The hearing is scheduled to begin in April. The development could pave the way for more international couples in Taiwan's LGBTQ community to wed. Taiwan says it's partially lifted import bans on Japanese foods on Monday. The restrictions have been enforced since the 2011 nuclear accident in Fukushima. Taiwan had stopped importing all food items from Fukushima and the nearby prefectures of Ibaraki, Tochigi, Gumma, and Chiba. The ban excluded alcoholic drinks. Earlier this month, officials announced they would lift the ban except for wild bird and animal meat, as well as mushrooms from those prefectures. They said the move was based on global standards and scientific proof. They noted most countries have eased restrictions. Taiwanese authorities say they sought feedback from the public about the decision and received only a few objections. Food from the five prefectures must still be accompanied by test results for radioactive materials, and all items will be subject to inspections in Taiwan. All prefectures must also still provide proof of origin. 
Officials in Japan say the safety of, of the food has been scientifically proven, and they'll continue asking Taiwan to lift all the regulations. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 7.245 and 9.865 or on the web at www3 nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's www.outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at the website along with the podcast link. And get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which will complete its 25th year of production in April, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.